you have your Bibles with you, please turn with me to Hebrews chapter 8. It feels as though we have been in chapter 8 for a while, and that is because of the importance of this text and of the new covenant. And uh, we are going to be finishing up our series on the new covenant uh, this evening, and then Pastor Minger will come and preach uh, the next midweek. Well, Hebrews chapter 8, let's read from verse 10 all the way to verse 13. And may God plant his eternal word into our souls. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and I will write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen and everyone his brother saying, know the Lord for all will know me from the least to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. And when he said a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. But whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. We bow with me to word of prayer. Almighty God, we pray according to your mercy. Bestow on us the meaning of your words the light of your understanding and faith in the truth. And grant that we, what we hear, we may believe and treasure in our hearts. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, amen. I will be your God and you will be my people is the heartbeat of every divine covenant in the Bible. I will be your God and you will be my people is the thread that runs through God's eternal and unchanging purpose to bring a people to himself. This is what old Palmer Robertson has called the Emmanuel principle of the covenant. The heart of the covenant that God has made with man is the declaration, God is with us. Now the first time this phrase is mentioned is in Genesis 17.7 with reference to the establishment of the circumcision as a seal of the Abrahamic covenant. God reassures Abraham of the settled character of his covenantal commitment. And he says to him, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. Under the Mosaic covenant, the old covenant, the phrase appears very frequently throughout and with pointed emphasis. For example, in Leviticus 11.45, the covenant Lord says, I am the Lord who brought you up from the land of Egypt to be your God. Quite often you hear of Yahweh reminding the Israelites that they are a people for his own possession. Now perhaps the most extensive place where the Lord uses his phrase is in Deuteronomy 29, 12-13, something you've been learning if you are sitting in Pastor Eric's Bible study Deuteronomy 29.12, it says that you may enter into the covenant with the Lord your God and to his oath, which the Lord your God is making with you today, in order that he may establish you today as his people, and that he may be your God. Now that God desires to have a people for himself also appears in the Davidic covenant. At a very critical point in the history of Israel's monarchy, the covenant of David is spoken of explicitly of God's covenantal commitment. The high priest Jehoiada is replacing the corrupted Queen Athaliah with seven-year-old Jehoash. And if you remember, he was hiding so as to maintain the line of David. And in 2 Kings 11.17, 
we read, then Jehoiada made a covenant between the Lord and the king and the people that they would be the Lord's people. Also between the king and the people. And this thread that God is with us culminates and finds its fulfillment in the new covenant where we have read in Hebrews 8.10 concerning the new covenant, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. The whole of redemptive history is the exploration of how God makes a people his own. How he gathers them and he shapes them into his people. After all, the God who establishes the new is the same God who has made the old. And so theologians would say that there is a continuity within the divine covenants. A single theme that unifies all the covenants. That God's purpose in the covenants is to be their God and to have a people for himself is the same in the bo- both in the Old and New Covenants. But the point that the author of Hebrews introduced in chapter 8 is the distinction of the New to the Old. Under the Old Covenant, the Lord acknowledged all those in Israel to be His people and Himself to be their God so long as they obeyed His command. It was conditioned, in other words, upon the obedience to His perfect law. Their privilege to be God's people were enjoyed irrespective of sanctifying grace. And so, so long as they received the circumcision and then they adhered to the external laws of the Mosaic Covenant, they were part of the covenant community. And it is just here that we see one of the most profound differences between the covenants. Children entered the old covenant and were part of God's people under the old covenant without being regenerated. But the new covenant, as we began to discover last week, is entirely different. In contrast to the old covenant, every member of the new covenant is regenerated. That is a striking thing you see of the new covenant blessing. Jeremiah stresses that no longer shall each of you teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. In other words, everyone in the new covenant community is regenerated. There are no exceptions. Now, the sign of baptism, and this, by the way, is what, let me just say, is what distinguishes us as Baptists from the Presbyterians. The sign of baptism, which is a symbol of one's membership in the new covenant, are only reserved for those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ and thus regenerate. Whereas my Presbyterian brothers believe that infants can receive a sign of baptism, and be part of the new covenant community. Now, I love my Presbyterian brethren, but with all due respect, they are wrong on this issue. That is my little Baptist plug and conviction. My own dad is a Presbyterian pastor, so I'm saying this with conviction. But more important than my Baptist convictions that are drawn from this text is the truth that the new covenant with its blessings are far superior to the old. After all, how can God have a people to himself who have no such heart in them to love and to obey him? In order for the holy Lord to have a people for himself, they too must be holy, just as we read in the scripture reading. And it is only possible through the better mediator, Jesus Christ, who has kept the law on our behalf and in whom we have been made alive together. This is what we began to discover last week. That rather than inscribing the laws on tablets of stone, The Lord, by His Spirit, has now written His law in our hearts. 
the old covenant is much like those labels on the uh, electronic toys that says batteries not included, right? You open the long-awaited Christmas present only to find that you couldn't make it work. But the new covenant blessings in the gospel is a gift that comes with batteries included. God gives us power through his Holy Spirit to make our new life work. John Barrage put it like this. Run, John, and work the law commands, yet finds me neither feet nor hands. But sweeter news the gospel brings, it bids me fly and lends me wings. Radical transformation by the power of the Holy Spirit is the blessing of regeneration. Now, I did promise you five blessings of the new covenant last week, and so we covered two of them, the blessing of unification and the blessing of regeneration. There are three more that we will cover tonight. Here now is a third blessing, personal knowledge. To know God is at the heart of salvation and of all true spiritual experience. Knowing God is what we were created for. In Scripture, we know that God is almost, to know God is almost equivalent to salvation. Jesus said that eternal life or salvation means knowledge of God. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent, John 17, 3. To be a Christian, then, is not a mindless experience, but it involves knowledge, personal knowledge with the Lord. Now behind what Jesus says in John's Gospel lies the blessing that God gave centuries before in the prophecy of the new covenant. And they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen, and everyone his brother saying, Know the Lord, for all will know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them. Now earlier in Jeremiah 24, verse 7, the Lord connected regeneration to personal knowledge when he declared, I will give them a heart to know me, that I am the Lord. Now, again, I want you to see the marked contrast between those under the regime of the old covenant with the new. Because many under the, no, the old covenant had no personal knowledge of God. You see, there was a constant need for them to have priests and prophets to make known the latest word from God. The Israelites of old had to rely on the word from the prophets that they received from the Lord. And then the knowledge of God was then spread to one man after another. In the Old Covenant, we see that the Holy Spirit is poured on a selective prophets, kings, and priests who had the privilege of personal knowledge of God, but we recognize that the Spirit wasn't distributed to all. For example, I want you to turn to Numbers chapter 11. Numbers 11. Now, this story is told in what is a very difficult time for Moses. The Israelites have been complaining of their wilderness diet of manna. And despite how great of a leader Moses was, he had his limits. And being burdened with the weight of leading the people and dealing with their constant complaints, God sympathized with him and told him to select 70 of the elders of Israel and bring them to him to the tent of meeting. And look at what God promised to him in verse 17. Then I will come down and speak with you there. And I will take of the spirit who is upon you, Moses, and will put him upon them, and they shall bear the burden of the people with you so that you will not bear it all alone. Now, this happened just as God said it would. 
These men received the Holy Spirit and began to prophesy. It was a sign to the people that they had received this gift and therefore chosen by God to minister alongside Moses. But two of these elders were not with the others at the tent of meeting. But the Spirit of God still came on them as well. And they also prophesied. Now this bothered some of the hotshots who were closest with Moses. One young man ran up to him saying, Ildad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. Joshua, who had been closest to Moses since his youth, said, Moses, my Lord, restrained them, stopped them. Now look at verse 29. Moses' reply aptly describes the hope in the future that the Spirit will be poured out on all of God's people. But Moses said to him, Are you jealous for my sake, Joshua? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit upon them. Moses, you see, he longed for God to put his spirit upon all of the Lord's people and desired that they were all prophets, but he knew that could never be under the Mosaic economy. In the Old Testament period, as we said, the Holy Spirit was not a common gift to all of God's people. Now I want you to turn to Joel, the prophet Joel chapter 2. Verse 28 to 29. In Joel, we begin to see the prophecy where the, fulfill, where the fulfillment of Moses' desire would take place. Joel 2, verse 28. He prophesied, it will come after this, that I will pour out my spirit on all mankind, and your sons and daughters will prophesy your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on the male and female servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. Now, who is the one that quotes this passage? That's right. It's Apostle Peter who quotes this passage as he preached on the day of Pentecost. On the day of Pentecost, the people in Jerusalem witnessed the spirit being poured down not simply to a select number of prophets, but to the church. Peter's point is that God's people in the new dispensation comes a new relationship with God and intimacy with God that was not possible in the Old Covenant. Prophets in the Old Testament were given special revelation and knowledge from God. As we said, the status of being a prophet of God gave him the special privilege of intimate knowledge of God. But now you see, because of Pentecost and because Christ poured down His Spirit, we could all enjoy the special privilege of knowing God through His Spirit. In this sense, all of God's people are now prophets, just as we are all priests and kings. Think of it, beloved. The select few in the Old Testament economy who had this special relationship and privilege of mediating for God's people now belong to all of God's people. I want you to note again the universality of the new covenant blessing. From the least to the greatest of them. The same is spoken by the prophet Joel, that I will pour out my spirit on all mankind, sons and daughters, male and female servants. You see, no longer do we now need a human mediator to teach us to know the Lord. Now all of us have received the spirit of Jesus who is the exalted prophet, priest, and king, we share now in that anointing. 
Now, Jeremiah or Joel did not mean, okay, that no teachers or preachers are ever needed by believers. The author of Hebrews himself is a preacher himself. But what they meant was that the function of human teachers now is to clarify and to unfold rather than to convey new revelation from God. The revelation in the person of the incarnate Son, Jesus Christ, has already come by the Holy Spirit indwelling in each believer. And that provides us personal knowledge to know God. Now, just what does it mean to have personal knowledge of God? Well, in his famous sermon, A Divine and Supernatural Light, Jonathan Edwards unpacks the essence of this personal knowledge of God as he contrasts knowing things about God and knowing Him personally. He writes, There is a difference between having a rational judgment that honey is sweet and having a sense of His sweetness. A man may have the former that knows not how honey tastes, but a man cannot have the latter unless he has an idea of the taste of honey in his mind. So there is a difference, he says, between believing that a person is beautiful and having a sense of his beauty. The former may be obtained by hearsay, but the latter only by seeing the countenance. You see, Edwards has captured the essence of true, intimate, personal knowledge of God. A chemist may be able to analyze honey and speak precisely of all of its properties. But if he has never tasted honey, his knowledge is not experiential. But that is precisely what every Christian has in the new covenant. A real, a genuine, and experiential knowledge of God provided by the supernatural light of the Holy Spirit. Have you considered this tremendous blessing you have in personally knowing God? This knowledge of God is our greatest privilege. I want you to hear Jeremiah again. Jeremiah 9, 23. Thus says the Lord, Let not a wise man boast of his wisdom, and let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not a rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts, boast of this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth, for I delight in these things, declares the Lord. Beloved, life is only worth boasting about if at its center is the knowledge of God controlling all of our ambitions. What do you and I boast about? What subjects or conversations gets us excited the most? Do we consider knowing God to be the greatest treasure in the world? Do we view it as our greatest privilege? We need to let these questions sink into our hearts and consciences. The knowledge of our God is our greatest privilege, yet it is perhaps the the church's greatest need today. This was the cry of the prophets of old. Isaiah 1, 2, an ox knows its owner and a donkey its master's manger, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand the lack of a knowledge of God lies at the root of all of our spiritual problems. It shows up in our personal lives. It shows up in our marital problems. It shows in our lack of impact on the world. It shows most obviously in the character of our worship. And it shows in the wildly popular trend in the contemporary church towards a confidence in counseling, psychology, 
and therapists. You know, more and more people are finding themselves at a loss to their own perplexing circumstances and are looking to find help outside of the church, outside of the means of grace God has provided for us to overcome our sins and problems and believe that their problems can only be solved by the sensitivity and the wisdom of a therapist. Now, this is not to say, hear me, this is not to say counselors and therapists have no place, but strikingly absent from these one-on-one sessions is a concentration on God himself. Lots of biblical application, lots of micro-application to one's life, but an absence of the knowledge of God. You know, an insightful article was sent to me, I think Pastor Danny, Pastor Eric, written by Carl Truman on this growing phenomenon of counseling, and he raised an important question. He says, does, does the rise in biblical counseling and the growth in the number of biblical counselors signal a crisis in confidence, not simply in the pulpit, but in the word of God to achieve its purpose? In other words, this trend to seek help from counselors and therapists reveal a lack of confidence in the Word of God, in the very means God has given us to have knowledge of God. And to this very important question, I raise some of my own. Wouldn't all of our problems be thoroughly addressed if we realize this blessing of the new covenant, that as Christians we all possess a personal knowledge of God? Wouldn't it be the case that fewer people would need counseling and therapists if they spent all of their energies in seeking to know God in a spirit of dependence on Him who asked for His Spirit to lead them into the truth? Wouldn't we grow in our confidence and trust in God if we believe what Jesus said in John 6.45, they shall all be taught of God so that we come to Christ To be personally taught by Him? Oh, there is a beautiful but often overlooked illustration of how we are personally taught from God through the means of the Word of God in the life of Isaiah. Isaiah. I want you to turn to Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 50. Isaiah chapter 50, verse 4 and 5. And it reads, the sovereign Lord has given me an instructed tongue to know the word that sustains the weary. He wakens me morning by morning, wakens my ear to listen like one being taught. The sovereign Lord has opened my ears and I have not been rebellious. I have not drawn back. What the prophet Isaiah had the privilege of every morning, having his ears awakened to the voice of God, is what every Christian has in the new covenant when we come to God's word, listening submissively to the voice of God is what brings us the knowledge of God for our weary souls. When we we move on to the fourth blessing of the new covenant, complete forgiveness. Go back to Hebrews chapter 8, verse 12. The Lord says, For I will be merciful to their iniquities, And I will remember their sins no more. Now again, it must be emphasized, the fundamental need of man is his need of God. Everything that goes wrong in life in this world is due to us not rightly relating to God. And so what we need above all else is the forgiveness of our sins so that we can be reconciled to Him. And you and I cannot be reconciled to God 
until the question of my sin and guilt has been dealt with. And here, again, we must contrast the superiority of the new covenant to the old. While the old covenant showed the need of the forgiveness of sins, it could not ultimately provide the forgiveness of sins. Now, sure, under the Levitical economy, there was forgiveness available to the contrite and obedient Israelites, as we see in the case of David. But even for David, as well as any Israelites, the very fact of a repeated sacrifice served as a reminder that no final sacrifice for sin had yet been offered. In fact, the imperfections of the Mosaic Covenant, with all of its sacrificial system, is seen most clearly in Hebrews 10, verse 3, when it says, But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year. The Israelite of old knew that of all the atoning sacrifices of sin, they were simply a reminder, a reminder of their sins, a reminder to them that these sacrifices were but shadows of good things to come. That was the point of the old covenant. The law's function was to uncover sin. The law is a mirror, as we said, and mirrors, they show stains, but it cannot remove them. In contrast then to the limitations of the old covenant, the forgiveness given in the new covenant is free, full, perfect, and everlasting. That word, which is rendered here merciful, is the word propitious. Why is that important? Propitiation means that no mercy is given without any sacrifice made to satisfy God's holy justice. Now that root word merciful is the word that is used in the description of the mercy seat that sat atop of the Ark of the Covenant. The mercy seat was the place where the blood of the sacrifice was brought by the high priest on the Day of Atonement. And upon the mercy seat, I know this is review for some of you, but it's good for us to understand this. At each end, Facing each other were statues of cherubim with wings stretched upward and then outward, almost meeting directly over the ark. And in a symbolic way, God was imagined to dwell above the ark, between the outstretched wings of the cherubim. The ark, as it stands, is a picture of judgment. Because for when God looks down on his people between the outstretched wings of the cherubim, what does he see? He sees the law of God. That has been broken by all. And when God looks down, he sees inside the ark tablets of the Ten Commandments. It was a sign to him that since his people have broken his holy law, God must act in judgment. God cannot ignore sin and sin must be punished. Once a year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would slaughter a goat. With the blood of the goats, he would enter the holy place to make propitiation for the people's sins. There he would take the blood of the goat and sprinkle it on the golden lid called the mercy seat. And when that blood was sprinkled on the mercy seat, what does God see now as he looks down between the outstretched wings of the cherubim? He sees not the law of God that has been broken, but he sees the blood of the sacrificial substitute. And by virtue of that blood and what it represented, God turns away His judgment and His anger and His love goes out to forgive for all who would come to trust in this sacrifice and propitiation has been made. So it would be very appropriate for us to read verse 12 like this. I will be mercy seated 
toward your iniquities. Beloved, realize that the forgiveness of sins was such a great problem that nothing but the blood of Jesus Christ could deal with it. That is the only way that God could forgive our sins was for Christ to die a bloody death on the cross to render God propitious towards sinners and through Christ alone can God be merciful toward the sins of his people. My non-Christian friend, before you can be forgiven, you must realize something of the enormity of sin. And we see something of the horrible and terrible nature of sin that it necessitates the cross. You see, there are two words noted in this text emphasizing the obnoxiousness of sin to the holy God. The word iniquity has the force of lawlessness. When a man sets himself against the Lord Almighty and therefore he has a determination to go please himself and follow his own way. But that second word, sin, deals with the standard in which one misses the mark. The standard, the mark that every man and woman must fulfill is the glory of God. But sin is to miss that mark. For the Bible says we have all fallen short of the glory of God. And when a man and a woman really sees himself face to face with God and his holy law, he realizes what he truly is and begins to say, Oh Wretched man that I am. That is the language of someone who has seen their guilt, their iniquities, and their sin before a holy God. And non-Christian, your sin is so terrible, so vile, and so foul that nothing could deal with it but the blood of Christ. God is then saying to you, your sins can be forgiven if you but come confessing your sins and putting your faith in Jesus Christ who has shed his blood. Now, if the riches of God's forgiveness ended at God's mercy being demonstrated through the propitiation of Jesus Christ, that would be reason enough to, to thank and praise God for eternity. But oh, but our dear Lord, he assures us of more. For God not only forgives, you see, but he also forgets. The phrase remembers no more means holds against us no more. Now it isn't that the omniscient, all-knowing, glorious God has somehow zapped our sin out of his memory such that he can never recall it back. But it means that he does not hold it against us. Now you know many marriages struggle because of this very issue. Despite making claims of forgiveness, maybe it was something that happened years ago, perhaps decades ago, yet the husband or the wife still brings it up, still holds it against their spouse, and they say things like, don't you ever think that I forgot the time that you betrayed me? I have never forgotten what you did. I may have forgiven you, but I have not forgotten the pain that you have caused me. We will not hear any like the, anything like this from God. Instead, he says, I will remember your sins no more. Once our sins have been forgiven, it is never brought before us again. God has dealt with our sins in such a thorough manner in Christ that he has put them away once and forever, and we will never see them again. Oh, I must bring up the, the illustration of Leviticus 16 again. 
where the high priest took a goat and he put his hands upon it and thus Israel sins on it. And then the goat was driven away into the wilderness, never to be seen again. That is how God puts away sin. We read in Psalm 103, as far as the east is from the west, so far he has removed our transgressions from us. He could not remove them further than that. What an amazing thing this is, that God has so dealt with our sins that he has taken them and he has cast them into the sea of forgetfulness. That is an eternal forgetfulness, never to be seen again. Beloved, it is only God who can do that. This is the glory of the blessing of the new covenant's forgiveness of sin, that God not only forgives, but he also forgets. Now, I have saved the fifth blessing last because the fifth and final blessing of the new covenant is the crowning blessing. It is the blessing in which all other blessings, unification, regeneration, personal knowledge, forgiveness of sins, they all lead to. In fact, it is the apex of all the covenants that God has made with man, the covenant with, covenant with Adam, the covenants with Abraham, Moses, and David. What then is the crown? of all the blessings and the apex of God's redemptive purposes. It is the blessing where our Lord God says, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. There is nothing further than this. There is no greater blessing than this. Now, John Murray has put it wonderfully when he says, and when we remember that covenant is not only a bestowment of grace, not only oath-bound promise, but also relationship with God in that which is the crown and goal of the whole process of religion, namely union and communion with God, we discover again that the new covenant brings this relationship also to the highest level of achievement. Now we must recognize that this intimate relationship with God was available. And it was present in the earlier covenants. The difference with the new covenant is that it achieves the ripest, the richest intimate relationship because the mediator of the new covenant is none other than God's own son, the express image of his father. I want you to turn to Revelation 21.3. Revelation 21.3. Here in John's vision of the new heavens and the earth, we see how all of God's creation and redemptive purposes comes to its culmination. John sees the new Jerusalem, the bride of Christ. And we read in verse 3, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and He will dwell among them, and they shall be His people, and God Himself will be among them. What a vision that is of what heaven will be like. What is heaven, friends, but to be with God, to dwell with him and to realize that God is mine and I'm his. The, the greatest blessing of all is intimate fellowship with God in which we can say, I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. Now, I want you to know that this blessing has two parts. The first is the precious promise of when the Lord says, I will be your God. Now we need to pause and dwell on this. I will be your God. Consider all that is meant by the word God. 
eternity, infinity, omnipotence, omniscient, unchanging, perfect love and goodness, mercy and grace, wisdom and truth, compassionate and holiness. Consider also the wonderful titles of God, everlasting Father, creator and redeemer, preserver, sovereign Lord, guardian, a rock and a refuge. We can go on, but when God says, I will be your God, he said, put all of these together. Put all of my glorious attributes and titles together. Combine it with all of my promises and blessings. All of that you can call your own. Will Helmus Abrackle, the Dutch Puritan, said that this is the sum and substance of all true felicity or happiness. Then he says that this felicity does not consist in receiving a benefit from God, but in having God himself as one's portion. Did you hear that? Happiness does not come from receiving benefits from God, great as all of the benefits are, but it's in having God himself as our portion. Oh, yes, the prophets affirm this to be true. Jeremiah declares in Lamentations 3.24, The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I have hope in him. The psalmist Asaph echoes these words in the context of tribulations. Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. This means that our chief delight and greatest enjoyment ought to be in God. In fellowship with Christ. All the best things that any human being can ever wish for. Joy and peace and love and satisfaction. They're all found in God. And if to have God as our portion is our greatest blessing, we would be fools to find any true enjoyment other than in God. Do you realize this great blessing you have? Are you finding your all in all in God? Are you spending the best of your energies to be before him with delight and love? Where is your treasure? You must have a continual And a lively impression that God in Christ has become your God. So that with David you can say, Oh God, you are my God. The first part of the final blessing is the possession of God. I will be your God. But the second part then is God declaring to us. And you shall be my people. The second part is much like the vows that a wife makes when she responds to her husband. Now, we as the bride of Christ respond to his eternal love to be ours forever by saying, I too am yours forever. And since we are God's people, we must unreservedly yield ourselves to him alone. You see, the basic principle that we are God's people is that we are not to live as to please ourselves. We are not to live as as if we belong to ourselves. You see, we belong to God. I am your God and you shall be my people. Now, there is one last observation I must mention in the new covenant. That the new covenant is not a conditional covenant upon our obedience to receive God's blessings. But it is unconditional. As God grants to us his blessings all because Of the free grace of God. Now going back to the marriage analogy. We must remember that God's covenant with his people. Is his marriage bond and vow. Just as in a marriage covenant. We do not say. I promise to love you and cherish you. 
but only if you will, blank, blank, blank. But rather, I love, I promise to love and cherish you till death parts us. So it is with God. You see, there are no ifs in the new covenant. There is no, I promise to love you if you love me back. No, what is it that we see in the blessings of the new covenant? I will, for this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel. I will put my laws into their minds and I will write them on their hearts. I will be merciful to their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. God commits himself to us in an unconditional love. He does not love us if we love him. He loves us with an I will unconditional kind of love. And only after God's unconditional love of I will, then do we see our part. You shall be my people. Don't forget the order. God's covenant love is not the result of our commitment. It is the cause of it. The pattern is always I will, therefore you should. Not I will, but only if you will first. This is the whole message of the Bible. It is shaped around God's coming to us in this covenant love. And it lies in this supreme word, I will. God has so bound himself in love to us through the bond of the covenant and the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. All of the old covenant shadows comes to its culmination in the cross of the new covenant. The long history of covenant administration comes to its finality when Jesus Christ took the cup and said to his disciples, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Jesus gave himself wholly for us. So now we must give ourselves wholly to him. Beloved, since God has given himself in love through his son, Jesus Christ, there is to be no other focus in your life. He must be the dominating focus for your life. His kingdom, his will, and his purposes must be the engine that drives your life. Your only reason for living must be found in glorifying God in your life, finding God in your, as your highest good, as your all-sufficient portion in coming to trust Him and love Him. God has Himself completely given to you. You must then die to yourself and give yourselves unreservedly to Him. Now, William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army movement in the 19th century was asked about the secret of his spiritual power. He gave a very interesting and insightful answer. He says, there was a day in my life when I vowed that God would have everything there was to have of William Booth. Beloved, I pray that all of us would make that same vow, that God would have everything there is to have of me. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, we thank you for being a covenant-making God and a covenant-keeping God. And through our studies of the blessings contained in the new covenant, we have come to see why the Apostle Paul breaks out in praise and says, Blessed be the God of Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. 
Yet we confess to you, O Lord, rich as we are, we have lived in spiritual poverty. We have not come to you to be taught by you in your word. We have not gloried in the forgiveness we have received through the blood of the cross as we ought to. We have not treasured you in our lives, but have sought to find our delights in anything but you. Forgive us for our sins according to your great mercy. Help us to think much of the glorious blessings we have in the new covenant so as to walk faithfully and live for your glory alone. In Christ we pray, amen.